Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 17. Gabriel, can you grab that? Genesis 17. Maybe you're in the process of doing it right now, but if I could have a time up on that, I think you guys would be blessed with that. I do. Because I feel like I've got something in me that I want to share with you tonight, and I want to make sure that I don't go, you know, at least more than half an hour over time, right? Okay. Time's still not up there. So I've got all night, guys. All right. So a young Jewish boy started attending a public school in a a, a small little town. And teacher was in a a one-room school. She decided to use her position to try and influence the new student and offered a lollipop to the one who gave the right answer. She asked the class, who was the greatest man who ever lived? A girl raised her hand and said, I think George Washington was the greatest man who ever lived because he's the father of our country. The teacher replied, well, that's a good answer, but that's not quite the answer I was looking for. Another young student raised his hand and said, I think Abraham Lincoln was the greatest man who lived because he freed the slaves and helped end the Civil War. That's another good answer, but not the one I was looking for. Then the new Jewish boy raised his hand and said, I think Jesus Christ was the greatest man who ever lived. The teacher's mouth dropped open in astonishment. Yes, she said. That's the answer I was looking for. She then brought him up to the front of the classroom and gave him a lollipop or tootsie roll. Later, during recess, another Jewish boy approached him as he was licking his lollipop. And he said, why did you say Jesus Christ? The boy stopped licking his lollipop and replied, I know it's Moses, and you know it's Moses, but business is business. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not sure whether to laugh at that joke or to cry at that joke. Do you understand? Obviously, I'm not faulting you if you left. That was the intention. But there is a sad truth that's found In that statement, many Jews today live and die without Jesus Christ. And they will end up spending an eternity away from the very God that gave them the scriptures. You know, the Jews have been perhaps the most persecuted people in all of history. Think about this. The Jewish people... The northern kingdom went into captivity in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, went into captivity three different times, starting in 605 B.C. Three deportations. They have been harassed. They have been, people have sought to exterminate them. Hitler tried to wipe them out of his country. Stalin tried to do the same. Total, there were, were well over 10 million that lost their lives. Uh, Over 15 million, really. And yet, when we step back, 
I think it's only a, a sensible question to ask why. Why so much persecution? I think we're going to find out why today in our sermon series that I'm entitling Israel and the Church. Now, can I just say that the answer you think I might give, I probably am not going to give. I'm going to be looking at some scriptures that few people tend to look at towards the end of the sermon. And I believe we're going to come to some challenging solutions that scripture shares with us concerning Israel and the church. Now, I did say this was a series. So guess what that means? This is just the first installment. We're going to look at a number of questions and try and sort through these questions to find answers such as, is Israel the chosen people of God today? Has God rejected Israel? Has the church replaced Israel? Should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Is God's presence, and and I heard one particular couple uh, discussing this and caused me to raise this question, is God's presence in Jerusalem stronger than in a Christian home? What is Zion or the mountain of God today? We sang a song with regard to Zion. Is that even theologically accurate? What is the remnant? Should we protect Israel presently today as Israel is the hub of much disputation, uh, wars, disagreements, and truly has been the entire 1900s spilling over into this present century? Should we protect Israel? And if we do, at what cost? At all cost? Does Israel becoming a nation or achieving statehood in 1948, play into Bible prophecy. And the question today that I'm putting on the table is how does God view Israel today? So the title of the sermon today is How or God's View of Israel. Now, I'm purposely choosing my words. I am not saying God's relationship with Israel because that would imply a two-sided interaction. I could call it God's relating to Israel because that word relating generally is one-sided. But I think some of the conclusions that we're going to come to may surprise you. God's view of Israel. So I'm going to encourage you. There's a, a number of sermons that we're going to go through and we're going to look at this. It has vast implications for us today. Not only with regard to Israel, which has become a hub of controversy and wars, and what is going to be the outcome of this, is America going to continue to back away and let Israel be picked off and bombed and destroyed? Do we only back Israel for political reasons? Is there something that in Scripture calls us to action, or does it call us to be neutral? So I want, to be, I want to challenge you over this series. Don't be quick to draw conclusions. Don't be quick to draw what you think my conclusion is. I'm going to surprise you. But don't be quick to draw your own personal conclusions. And I would venture to say some of you have studied the word more than others. And you probably have some very strong opinions on this matter. 
I'm going to just encourage you as we go forward, I'm going to do the best that I can. I want to present a very touchy subject over a number of sermons, but I don't want it to just be theological in nature. I mean, I do want us to understand Scripture's view of Israel and the church. But I believe that what's going to happen is not just a proper understanding of our place with regard to Israel today, but I believe as we look through the Old Testament, we're going to see a large number of Old Testament passages come alive to us. And I'm just going to tell you right now that I'm going to put a word up here that I will erase shortly. Hermeneutic. And this is how Herman has chosen to, decide, chosen to interpret the scriptures for us. Um, actually, it has nothing to do with Herman, but hermeneutics basically means Bible study principles. How do we interpret scripture? There's got to be some guidelines. We don't want to enter into our study with a conclusion and let that conclusion drive our understanding of scripture. That's not how we interpret scripture. We always want to interpret scripture with scripture. The easier verses help interpret the harder verses and so on. There are hermeneutic, hermeneutical principles. The best way for us to understand just this one point that I made, that the Old Testament, many of the passages will come alive to us. I'm not even telling you what I mean by that. You're just going to have to guess in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to need to look at how the New Testament authors interpreted these Old Testament passages. And today we are going to look at one from the Old Testament, but we're going to draw some hermeneutical principles from this that will help carry us forward because we don't want to move forward in the dark. We don't want to move forward with, well, this is just what I think is right. This is what I'm guessing here. I want us to be fair. There have been godly men who have held varying opinions on this, starting all the way back to Justin Martyr, who embraced what is commonly called replacement theology. Now, I'm going to draw two ends of a spectrum here. Over here, and... uh, This right here is going to be called replacement, I'm going to abbreviate here, theology. I'm going to explain that in a moment. And over here, we're going to call this dual covenant. And I'm going to abbreviate covenant, if you don't mind, theology. Now, I realize that today's sermon is going to be a little bit more on the theological. And and I'm praying that God surprises us and, and really speaks a prophetic word to us today. But dual covenant theology, I'm going to get to replacement theology in a moment. Dual covenant theology is the belief that the Jews have a covenant with God and that the Gentiles, or the church, I should say, has a covenant with God today, right now. The Jews' covenant with God is the Abrahamic covenant... They are saved by observing the law. And that the church would be Gentiles saved by Christ's death on the cross. Can I just categorically say at this moment, this is heresy. Okay? I usually don't call things out quite so readily like this. But this is clearly heresy because it tells us that you can actually get right with God by doing good works. And scripture makes it abundantly clear. Old Testament and New Testament, they were never saved by observing the law. This has been 
purported uh, springing from, though I do not believe dispensational theology holds to this, but this is the leaning of dispensational theology. It opens the door to this, that there was a Mosaic covenant and that they were saved by works in the Old Covenant. That is not true. Abraham was a man of faith and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. From Abraham to today, we have always been saved by faith. Today, as James 2 says, show me your faith and I will show you my works. Faith without works is dead. We are not saved by faith and works. We are saved by faith. That makes the tree good. The good tree produces what, church? Good fruit. The good Jew who believed in God Almighty and pursued him... The good fruit was the observance of the law, both the moral law, the the, uh, judicial law, and the ceremonial law. He kept the law, but he was never saved by the law. And so for some reason, there's been a lot of confusion in this. Maybe among some of you as you're wondering, well, how did they even get saved in the Old Testament? It has always been by faith. That is, it has never been any other way. But this concept of dual covenant theology um, is truly a heresy... Because it actually says to the Jew, you don't need Jesus. How tragic is that? What did Peter do twiddling his thumbs on on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 responded. Now again, I'm I'm going to be mentioning a name right now. And I'm going to do this because I'm not saying that this man is a heretic. But I am saying he is bordering on it. He pulled his recent book, In Defense of Israel, off the shelf because there was so much controversy. I personally believe he wrote it to create controversy. And, and okay, that's fine to create controversy, but give genuine answers. It's just that when he gave his answer, it was very convoluted. And so he pulled the book off the shelf, and I I don't know if it's back on the shelf. He said he was going to be rewriting it. He took some videos off making claims about his view of this. And by even though he says he does not adhere to uh, dual covenant theology, by his statements he clearly does. I'm sure there's some aspects of dual covenant theology that this man does not adhere to. And for that reason, he says he, he is not an adherent to it. But this gentleman's name is John Hagee. He is the, uh, I, I guess, the founder of uh, CUFI. What is that? Christians United for Israel. Um, And he was interviewed, and in the Houston newspaper, he was quoted saying, I believe that every Jewish person who lives in the light of the Torah, which is the word of God, has a relationship with God and will come to redemption. That concerns me. I hope it concerns you. And he also was quoted saying, I'm not trying to convert the Jewish people to the Christian faith. He says later... In fact, or the article went on in its own words describing the interview. In fact, trying to convert Jews is a, quote, waste of time, he said. And again, quoting him, the Jewish people who has his, the Jewish person who has his roots in Judaism is not going to convert to Christianity. There is no form of Christian evangelism that has failed so miserably as evangelizing the Jewish people. Can I... Can I correct that, that this is perhaps the most effective form of evangelism? I don't know where he gets his data. 
But Jews are coming to Christ in the hundreds, if not the thousands. Sid Roth is a a gentleman. I can't say I completely agree with Sid Roth's theology on this issue here. But he goes, signs and wonders follow as he evangelizes the Jews. And hundreds and thousands of people are converted to Christ in his his evangelistic efforts. I I don't know where John Hagee gets this, this Supposed fact. They already have a faith structure, he says. He continues, and this is not in quotes, everyone else, whether Buddhist or Baha'i, needs to believe in Jesus, he says, but not Jews. Jews already have a covenant with God. Jews already have a covenant with God that has never been replaced by Christianity, he says. Now, that is an extreme. You will not find too many people believing that today. And what we're going to need to do, obviously, as we are searching the scriptures, is we're going to need to push away from this because the New Testament categorically says that this is false. Now, again, as I'm going through this, um, I'm going to encourage you, if you have questions, and you probably will, I want you to to approach me with some of these questions. Because I'm probably not going to be able to touch on everything. I'm probably not going to be able to answer all of your questions. And you may disagree with me. And you know what? I am perfectly fine with that. I truly am. I'm going to try my best not to be dogmatic, except when it comes to both of these positions. Replacement theology believes that the church has completely replaced Israel. We're going to find out today that that's not the case. That God does have a heart for Israel. Actually, if you study through the New Testament, you will find that the word Israel is used, or Jew, is used some 74 times. And almost every single one of them, it's it's very clear that it refers to Israel and not the church. There are a few that are in question. We may tackle some of those today, but that's truly not my point. But I believe that we are going to find that God does have a plan for his church, but he has not left the Jews by themselves and completely rejected them. As a matter of fact, Paul says his God rejected Israel and his, his, his response is by no means. And so as we push away from replacement theology, the question is scripturally, where do we Land. Now, can I say, in all fairness to replacement theology, because I will sound like I, I, I adhere to that, and I certainly lean much further in this direction if you haven't picked that up already. But God has a heart for Israel, and I'm going to try and spend the last 15 to 20 minutes addressing that because I believe that to be extremely important in our day. Replacement theology, the problem that I have with it is that The church has completely absorbed Israel and basically God has discarded Israel. And though there's some truth in that, it misses the point. Okay? So, we are, before I go say anything further, we need to find what scripture has to say. And so I trust that my attitude in this discourse will be one of humility and not arrogance. Arrogance gets us nowhere. When we discuss the word of God, we never want to be arrogant. When there is clear heresy such as this, and if we're not careful, this. This one, you you certainly, I wouldn't call it heresy. But this one certainly is because it misses the point of the gospel. But 
we need to treat Scripture fairly, all of Scripture. Let's start with the first thing that I want to talk about tonight. And I need to move quickly because I see it's already 25 after. But the first thing that, we, that I am immediately hit when I am studying this is this concept of an everlasting covenant. Now, if you've turned to Genesis 17, you may have guessed that that's where I was going within this. But there is an everlasting covenant that God gives to Abraham. The argument is, if it's everlasting, then that means it lasts forever. I'm not going to disagree with that. It's eternal. Absolutely. It is. The Abrahamic covenant. Listen to me and you can quote me. The Abrahamic covenant is eternal. But that truly is not the question here as I read the text and we begin to look into it. There is certainly much more that we need to look at and not just take this idea. It's an everlasting covenant. So the Jews today are in an everlasting covenant with God. Here's the problem that I have with that statement I just gave. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that God is in covenant with unbelieving Israel. It doesn't say that. I have to, as I search through the scriptures, I have to mark that down. Okay, as I am trying to find where does scripture land in this issue, I cannot say that unbelieving Israel is in covenant with God. Because you don't find that anywhere in Israel. That's going to be my second point that we're going to look at. You never find in the New Testament that Israel is called the chosen people of God. They are neither chosen nor the people of God. And I'm just going to ask you, if you disagree with me, do a word study, look for the word chosen coupled with Israel or the Jews, unbelieving Jews, and you won't find it. Now, when I first studied this a while back, I was surprised by that. I was trying to find what what does Scripture teach about all of this, and I found that kind of amazing to me. Because it's commonly, Israel is commonly spoken today, they're the chosen people of God. Now, that does, I am not saying that God has rejected Israel. That's going to take some fine-tuning that I hope we're going to be able to delve into at least a little bit tonight. Genesis 17, are you there with me? Starting with verse 6. It says, I will make you, speak, God speaking to Abraham in a vision. <clears throat> he says, I will make you. Very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Verse 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. For the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien... I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. He goes on in verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. My version has a colon here. I think that's a fair way of translating this. And it says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision that will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male, etc. I think we need to see this as a whole. And as we understand, what does it mean that this covenant is an everlasting covenant? Here's a clue 
that we need to use as we now transition into the New Testament, that as I read through the scriptures, it compels me to a conclusion. And it has to do with this concept of circumcision. I would venture to say, if this covenant is everlasting, so is its sign of circumcision. It is everlasting. And I agree with this. But as we move into the New Testament, what are we confronted with? Now, I'm only going to read a few verses. And I'm just, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give you the address. And then I'm going to tell you what these verses are. In Galatians 5, 6. Paul says to the Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is a letter that is written to Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, back the truth trolley up. You're trying to tell us that with regard to the Abrahamic covenant, that circumcision, which is the heart and soul of this everlasting covenant, is of no value? Whoa, wait a second here. He goes on to to say it emphatically in chapter 6, verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Wow. Where is he going with this? Actually, he says to those Jews who are introducing circumcision into the church... He says, and this is not my thought, it's his, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Exclamation mark. Wow, Paul, you're being a little firm here. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Now, what then, and I said it's an everlasting covenant, and that includes circumcision, then what where am I going with this? Colossians 2, 11 says that both Jews and Gentiles alike are circumcised by Christ. Spiritual circumcision is at the heart of this everlasting covenant. The, 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 the command of circumcision in the flesh that was given to Abraham... At the cross, changed. This this is crucial. Circumcision of the flesh was done away with. Circumcision of the heart is now what was focused on. It's not that circumcision of the heart wasn't there. It actually began to become more and more evident as it moved through the Old Testament... ...that, hey, you know what? God doesn't just want circumcision of the flesh. He wants circumcision of the heart... We kind of get some of this, but when we move into the New Testament, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is the sole focus. Circumcision of the heart, of the flesh. This happens when we are regenerated. This is why Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. So, I'm going to say that this Abrahamic covenant is indeed an everlasting covenant... But it changes at the cross. Now this isn't anything new. There are other everlasting covenants that we come across in the Old Testament. The everlasting covenant of the Sabbath. The everlasting covenant of the Sabbath as we move into the New Testament changes. Is the covenant still everlasting? Yes it is. However, 
the covenant changes as it moves into the New Testament. Hebrews 4 makes it... Colossians 2.15 says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. Wait a second, Paul, but we're supposed to keep the Sabbath, aren't we? As we move to Hebrews 4, it says that this rest, this Sabbath rest, is found only in Christ. It was a shadow, Colossians 2.16 that follows the verse I quoted, 15, says that these are a shadow. These religious festivals, New Moon Celebration, Sabbath, these are a shadow of things to come. The body that casts the shadow, the body is found in Christ. The temple and all of its ceremony, the, the, the sacrifices, the Sabbath, circumcision itself, these things were shadows looking ahead. The body is found in Christ and therefore its fulfillment. And so even though the Sabbath covenant is called an everlasting covenant... Though it lasts forever and we experience it today, Jews and Gentiles, at the cross it changed. There was an element that changed. The physical aspects fell away and the spiritual aspects are what are brought to light the body found in Christ because they were shadows. And so the covenant is indeed everlasting, but it is now not just given to Jews, it is given to Jews and Gentiles. Now, I'm going to touch on that in just a moment. Um, But the Levitical priesthood is also called an everlasting... God made an everlasting covenant with the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews makes it very clear that Christ fulfilled that. But he was not of the Levitical line. He was of the line of Judah. And therefore, he did not look to Aaron. He looked to, as Hebrews 6 and 7 says, Melchizedek. And he was, forever, he was forever a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So the Levitical priesthood, though an everlasting covenant, it changed at the cross and resurrection. The everlasting covenant of David's royal throne. There is no one sitting on the throne of David right now. But in heaven, spiritually speaking, there absolutely is. And he is the king of the universe. He created us to enjoy him forever. And both Jews and Gentiles in his church worshiping him who sits on the throne. And that is in fulfillment of David's throne. So this covenant is indeed everlasting. It changed at the cross. Jesus is not sitting in Jerusalem today on, in the palace on a throne. He is in heaven and he is fulfilling it forever and ever and ever. So is this covenant everlasting? Yes, but it changes at the cross. And we need right now to look at what is this change. The Abrahamic covenant changed at the cross. So I don't dispute this idea it's everlasting. The question though is in what way did it change? So turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Forgive me, if I get there before you, I need to jump right into it because my time is short. The time is coming, he says in verse 11. Jeremiah 31, 11. The time is coming, declares the Lord. I'm sorry, did I say 11? Sorry, 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let me try that one more time. The time is coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant, and I want you to underline or highlight that phrase, new covenant. 
with the house of David and with the house of Judah, pause for just a moment. Who is God Almighty, Yahweh in heaven, going to make this new covenant with? Who is he going to make it with, according to this passage right here? Okay, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. These are all Jews. He is going to make a new covenant with the Jews. It will be like the covenant, excuse me, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This covenant is the Mosaic covenant. That's the one that at the time of Jeremiah they are following, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with who? The house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 8. The author of Hebrews sheds quite a bit of light on this passage, both in chapter 8 and chapter 10. I'm not going to reread the passage, but you can see it. In my Bible, it's set apart, indented. ...from verse 8 all the way to verse 12. So I'm not going to reread that, but let me read verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. So this old covenant with Moses, an everlasting covenant, at the cross changed. It changed sufficiently so that... It is now called a new covenant. Some have used the term renewed as in renovated, not a completely different covenant. Because at the heart of this covenant of Moses is the covenant of Abraham in which by faith we have credited to us righteousness. That is always the case. But let me ask you this. How is it that God will put his law in your mind and write his word on your heart is it not by the holy spirit and in the old covenant the holy spirit came only upon those anointed by the spirit the prophets priests and kings or leaders we see that throughout the entire old testament the 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 blessing of the new covenant is that every believer has the holy spirit in them and as a result the spirit writes God's word on their hearts. His spirit is there yearning within us to obey and desire God. And so for this reason, he said, not only is the Holy Spirit in there to do this, but it says in the end, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Turn with me now to, it, to Hebrews 10. In Hebrews 10, he quotes from this one more time. Now I did ask you, who did he make this new covenant with? According to Jeremiah 31, we concluded it was with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let's see what the author of Hebrews tells us. And again, if we want to understand the Old Testament the best possible way, 
We look for how it's quoted in the New Testament because these are inspired authors of God who have insight far beyond our capabilities because the Holy Spirit is specifically directing them to truth, as, as, as it says in John 14, leading them into all truth. So what does this inspired New Testament author have to say? He quotes it there in verse 16, this covenant I will make with them, um, etc., etc., I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. What does verse 15 say? The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. Then he quotes from that passage. Let's understand what he means by that. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. So whatever this passage from Jeremiah 31 is given to prove... ...what he just said. Do you follow me on that? So the passage I just read to you... ...is going to prove what his point is. Let's look at verse 14. 13 and 14. He says, since that time... ...he waits for his enemies... ...Jesus that is... ...waits for his enemies to be made his footstool... ...because by one sacrifice... ...he has made perfect forever... ...all Jews... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. How do we know he is making perfect forever those who are being made holy by this one sacrifice? Jeremiah 31. This is what I'm saying. This is what the author is telling us. Though Jeremiah 31, in the language of Jeremiah, is given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, he tells us here it's for all those who are being made perfect. He doesn't say anything about specifically for the Jews. Actually, this new covenant, though it was originally grounded in what we're going to call the remnant, and we're going to look at that word another time, The beginning of the church was completely Jewish for 10 years, at least. The gospel began to grow first with Cornelius and then into Antioch in chapter 11. And it began to, the grace of God began to explode and the grace of God was evident amongst them, it says. And the church began to include the Gentiles. It started with the Jews, salvation is of the Jews, and it began to branch out into the Gentiles. This new covenant was not just for Jews. Though that is the way that Jeremiah words it. It was not just for the Jews, and just for the house of Israel, and just for the house of Judah. It was also for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were not an afterthought. Actually, many Jews will die outside this new covenant. He is clearly referring to the remnant the believers in Jesus of the Jewish community and the Gentiles that embrace Christ as Lord as well, what we call the church. Here is an example in which the New Testament author looks at an Old Testament passage and even though it's given to Jews, he says, hang on, it is for the entire church. I believe that is a fair hermeneutic. We are going to find this in many places, though I'm going to caution you, The problem with replacement theology is that it finds it everywhere in the Old Testament. And we're going to find many passages in which that is not the case. 
So as we do our homework, as we go through some of these Old Testament passages and we see them really coming alive to us, many of them, we're going to realize there are some that are for what the Bible calls the remnant and there are those that are for the, the church. And in doing our homework, we need to study hard to know what this is for. We're going to do some of that. Not all of them by any means. I want, to, I want you to see how this is done. Because as we read through like Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's like, wow, this is for me today. Now, I need to move on. Um, I want to ask you a question as you turn to Romans 11. Romans 11 deals with this very difficult issue of the Jewish people being grafted out of the olive tree. Verse 17, Romans eleven seventeen. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive tree, do not boast over those branches. Now, Other passages in this would make it clear that at some point the Jewish nation that God had a covenant with was grafted out, excuse me, was grafted out of the olive tree. So here is the here is my question to you. What is the olive tree? What is the olive tree? I want to pause here. I want you to think about this. Don't, don't just wait for Pastor Mike to give you the answer. Um, what is the olive tree? I want to be fair with this. There's a couple of passages that we could look at. I'm, I'm limited on time right now, but I am going to direct you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am going to direct you to Matthew 21:43, A parable specifically given to the Jews to let them know That the king has come back to his land and he has taken the kingdom away from them and given it to another people. I want you to consider the implications of that. That means Israel had the kingdom, but now they do not. Or at least I should word it this way. National Israel had the kingdom, but now, according to Jesus, they do not. As we were to... If you were to look through the Old Testament, as you were to study this concept of covenants in the Old Testament, God's choosing of his people, who are those who are his people, you would see this played out on two levels. Many people don't see this dual level, and if they don't see it, they come into the New Testament, especially Romans 9 to 11 that talks about election. It includes Israel, but it is very specific to individuals. In the Old Testament, we have this concept of national election has nothing to do with November the 4th, and individual election. We see national election, all of Israel, all of Israel was called the chosen people of God. And yet... There is constantly a reference to the remnant. We're going to look at that, as I say, another time. The remnant. Those who truly believed, and I probably should make this a little bigger, so uh, it obviously depended on the generation. But in all fairness, there was a remnant, and this remnant 
refused, for example, to bow the knee to Baal, and they truly worshipped Yahweh in heaven. And in Elijah's day, it tells us there were 7,000. A very small number, so in which case I'd probably have to do something like that to represent them. But very small in the context of all of Israel, northern kingdom, all of Israel, in which there were hundreds of thousands, if not over a million. Okay, And I would venture to say at least a million. Um, only 7,000. That is a very small percentage. Do the math. So what is that, 0.7% or, you know, I'm not thinking off the top of my head well. But very few. I'm not saying that that's the way it always was. In Judah, there were many more percentage-wise than in the Northern Kingdom because of all the, the, the Baal worship and occultic practices and, and idolatry, you name it, in the, in the Northern Kingdom. And the kings were wicked. The southern kingdom had far far more righteous kings. But the Bible speaks of this individual type of election. When we come to the New Testament, this is so important that we understand. This is how election is taught in the New Testament. This is completely gone. And test this for me, please. As you read through the New Testament, do you see anything about election on the level of a nation... ...or a large people group. It is always individuals. We, those whom he foreknew... ...he also predestined... ...to be conformed to the image of his son. Not an entire nation, individual. And we're going to see... ...we would see that also in Romans 11. I just don't have time for us to go through that. Because there is another passage... ...that I really want us to spend time with. But let me just... ...let me move quickly through this. The kingdom then... ...with regard to the olive tree... It could, it could very well mean the kingdom of God. It may very well, because in, in, in parallel fashion with this uh, kingdom, is the concept of a covenant relationship. Now, in a sense, all of Israel experienced this covenant relationship with God. They received blessings. They, were, they kept the Mosaic law. But their heart was far from God. And yet he still extended a covenant to them. But those who were truly in covenant relationship with him were the remnant. <clears throat> Matthew twenty one forty three says the kingdom... This right here, gone. This right here is what stays intact. And he is actually going to graft in many, many Gentiles. We could call this a covenant relationship. We could call it uh, the kingdom of God, whatever it is. Kingdom of God is far more frequently used in the New Testament than covenant relationship. But I think we, we get the drift here. So what... As we, as we move forward, as we move forward in high gear, we now come to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And I believe this will be our conclusion for this idea of the old covenant moving into the new covenant. 1 Peter, Peter himself says this in 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, this entire book... ...is not written just to Jews. This entire book is written to Jesus' church. Jesus' church, you are a chosen people. Jesus' church is a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. You and me, we are a holy nation... 
of people, a people belonging to God. Where some translation says a peculiar people, some just a little more peculiar than others, but nevertheless, we are his special possession. That's the idea here. We are his special possession, his church. The remnant of the Jews, the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus, all those under the new covenant, all those who have been grafted into the olive tree. They are in covenant relationship. They are together walking in this kingdom and we together are a chosen people. We see that this has been removed and the focus, God's focus is clearly on the remnant. It's clearly on Jesus' church here. We need to be very careful right now because we are towing the line. And if we are not careful, we could very easily come to this conclusion, God has forgotten Israel. They've just been absorbed into the church. Can I assure you that nothing could be further from the truth? We're going to need to go back to Romans 11. And in Romans 11, and... and I really do need to read it rather than just refer to it. In Romans 11, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to need to come back to this passage another time. But I am going to refer to you to, to verse 25 where it says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number or the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. Can we be very, very fair with the text here? Some in the, in the replacement theology camp have tended to say, this Israel is the church that does damage to the text. It cannot be that because the entire chapter in referring to Israel talks about the people of Israel and not the church. As a matter of fact, he just talked about Israel in the, <clears throat> in the previous verse. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. With the church has experienced a hardening? No. Israel, the nation of Israel, Jews, have experienced a hardening in part. There's going to come a time in which a, the full number or the fullness of the Gentiles will start reaching its climax and stir up such incredible jealousy within the Jews that they will look and they will say, this Jesus truly is the Messiah. And it says that there will, be, there will come such a move of God's Spirit that all Israel will be saved. My question to you is, does that sound as if God has forgotten Israel. Absolutely not. If you read just the very next two verses, we're just going to look at 28. It says, as far as the gospel is concerned, yes, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, that is election of the patriarchs, not national Israel, patriarchs, because that is the focus. Look at verse 7, and, and I'll let you read that another time. But his concept of election here is not national level, it's individual level. He's talking about those who truly, like Abraham, have faith that's credited to them as righteousness. The patriarchs did. Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says this concerning election. They are loved on account of the patriarchs. God looks upon the Jews today 
And it says he loves them. You might say, well, okay, okay, Pastor Mike, let's just be fair. He loves them, but then God so loved the world, right? God loves everybody. So, of course, he's going to love the Jews, even though they're enemies. Do you really think that that is a pertinent statement? Is it really important for Paul to even say that God really loves the Jews? But, oh, by the way, he loves everybody. So, you know, okay. There's something special here. And now, Revelation 12. This is where I really wanted to have us spend some time. This is such an awesome passage. In Revelation 12, and in Revelation 12, what we see here is John sees this vision of a woman with 12 stars that represents, obviously, the 12 tribes of Israel. She is the nation of Israel. She is the people of Israel, and she gives birth to a male child in verse 5, and he will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, obviously referring to Jesus Christ. And her child, her referring to the nation of Israel or the people of Israel, the child being Jesus, was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Can I just say this quickly? He is not talking about the first half of the tribulation here. Can I assure you of this? And that's most people when the 1,260, yes, three and a half years. Oh, that must be the first half of the covenant. I'm not even going to go there because the, the, the understanding of this, I believe, leads us to think that this, 12, this 1260 days it begins after Jesus' death and resurrection, not 2,000 years later. Do you see an insert of 2,000 years here? I don't. As soon as he ascends into heaven, she is whisked away into the desert where who, keep, who takes good care of her? God does. Why? Romans 12, 11 already told us, on account of election, because he, he loves the Jews because of the patriarchs. God loves the Jews. Skip over to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth due to the war described earlier, he pursued the woman. Did he pursue her 2,000 years later? No, he pursued her as soon as he was hurled to the earth at the cross. Pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time or <clears throat> in prophetic writing, that would be three and a half years, which is 1,260 days. So he's again just simply repeating what he said in verses 5 and 6, though with different words. And I believe these different words are significant, especially as we move into the next verse. He's kept out of reach, or she is kept out of reach of the serpent. And in verse 15, then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river... To overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who was her first offspring? Jesus. Who is the rest of her offspring? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's not referring to just any Jew here. He's actually referring to the saints. You can look at this 
in it later in, I didn't write the verse down, but later in Revelation, that concept of obeying the commands and keeping to the testimony of Jesus specifically refers to the saints, Jews and Gentiles, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. This is the, the rest of this woman's offspring. Here is the interesting thing. How does God protect this woman from this river of water, by the way, that seems very probable, uh, a reference to Isaiah 42.3. And in Isaiah 42.3, it very specifically says how God was going to protect his people, how he's going to protect the Jews when he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. We see that this is a fulfillment of this Old Testament passage. But how is this done? It says the earth opens its mouth and swallows up the waters. The word earth is used two different ways in Revelation. It's used with regard to just like planet earth... I'm losing my place here. It's used with regard to planet Earth, and I'm going to... In chapter 1, verse 7, the peoples of the Earth. That is, the peoples living on planet Earth. It's also used to refer to the actual inhabitants of the Earth, such as in Revelation 6, 8. A fourth of the Earth... ...was killed by the sword. He's not saying that the sword divided the the world up into one-fourth... ...and chopped up that entire world... ...so that we have this skewed-looking sphere now floating through outer space. Obviously not. He's talking about the inhabitants of the earth. So the word earth can be used either as the actual earth itself... ...or the inhabitants of the earth. And here's the challenge, I believe. God can... ...either of these can fit in this context. But here's my question to you. If he is referring here to the inhabitants of the earth... ...does this passage not tell us... ...the obligation of the inhabitants of the earth? And if that's the case, what is that obligation? That we are called by God... ...to protect Israel... ...from the attacks of Satan... Do you not see this throughout the the history of Israel? I believe that God has been, he has a vision for Israel from the time that he grafted them out. He says he has not rejected them forever. He has a purpose as history marches forward because at the end of the age, his goal is that all Israel be saved. Not all Israel meaning all the way back here to the time of Christ that somehow they get saved by getting a second chance in hell or limbo or wherever. No. But at the end of the age, all Israel will be saved. God is marching history forward. This is his goal. And he is preserving his people out of love for the patriarchs, marching them forward because he is hoping that they get stirred up in jealousy and long for this savior that they rejected back on the cross when he hung there in 30 AD. And as history is marching forward, the earth, the inhabitants of the earth are called to, to, to protect Israel. And here's my challenge for us tonight. Of all the people on planet earth that God would ask to protect his, the, the Jewish people whom he loves 
out of respect for the patriarchs and in view of what he has in store for them in the end times, do you not think that the church should lead the way in this? Is this not our call? You know what, church? We may well be in that day in which all Israel does come to Christ. We may be. It will happen after the full number of the Gentiles comes in, in which all nations will be streaming into the church. And I'm not saying everyone's being saved. I'm not saying that at all. But many will become worldwide awakening on planet Earth that will usher in and an even greater, percentage-wise, even greater number of Jews because all Jews will be saved. It doesn't say all inhabitants of the earth will be saved, but all Jews will be. Do you not sense the destiny of God as we read through these scriptures? Now, John segues away now as he moves into chapter 13 with the beast and such. He talks about the beast making war against the saints of God. And the focus is off the, the Jewish people, the woman. But he protects her because he has a destiny for her. We see this in the Holocaust with Corrie ten Boom. And many peoples, as, as even the God raised up certain in the British Empire when they conquered um, that portion of the Ottoman Empire and it, 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 in the early 1900s. And even then they began to wonder, to, so that the Jewish peoples don't get so persecuted, why don't we give them land? Why don't we give them the land they once had? And so it was for that reason, finally in 1948, a way was made. They carved out that state of Israel... And they allowed the Jews. Now they allowed the Jews before that to start migrating about 16,500 a year. Only because the Arabs made such a fuss about it. And they were afraid that tremendous violence would escalate. And so they had to cap that number. Though they allowed Christians and Arabs and anyone else, no number. You just go in there as much as you want. But to keep the peace, they limited the number. But in 1948, Israel became a nation. And so God has always had his people protecting the Jews. And, and here's the challenge. And we are going to be spending more time, but just not tonight, talking about then, if this be the case, and God is preparing the Jews for a mass conversion, even as he is preparing the nations for mass conversions, what can we do to facilitate that? And bringing Christ, not just to the nations, but to the Jewish people. Now, I feel I've been very fair with Scripture. If you don't feel that I have been, uh, I would love to get an email from you and say, well, Pastor Mike, I think you really took a lot of you know, license with this verse over here. And you know, I, I don't think God cares about the Jews at all. Um, please show me. I feel like I've been fair with the Scriptures. God loves Israel. He has an end time plan for them. He is protecting them for 1260 days, which translated prophetically is the time from the cross to the time in which all Israel is saved. He is protecting them. And we as a church, it is our goal to facilitate in that so that all Israel might be saved. I want, I want, to, I want that to beat in our heart. That this would be a passion of our own. The covenants were first given to them. They are right. Share with the passage, passages like Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Ethiopian eunuch got saved by 
Philip preaching the gospel to him on that passage. Many Jews have come to Christ through it. Can you stand with me? I'm just going to encourage you, if you know of a Jewish friend, pray for him or her. God has a harvest in in our day. And, And obviously, no, it's not just Jews. It is Gentiles as well. But history marches forward, and it does so according to God's plan. And it is awesome, church. So, Father, I just ask where where our hearts may get hardened, our our hearts may veer off course, even with theology, Lord God, I am asking, give us a heart for the people of Israel. You have purposefully and intentionally protected them. That is your heart. Make it ours. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to share Christ, make Christ known, not just with our actions, but with our words. And so stir up this jealousy within the Jews that they would soon and very soon, like waves on the shore, come to Jesus Christ, being grafted into the tree and be saved. Would you do this, God, and use us as your church to that end? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Sorry, I went over. Have an awesome, awesome weekend. And we'll see some of you guys on Wednesday night. God bless.